Hello and welcome back to Jaffaville. John and myself, Gary, is Tilt. Hello. We are going to talk about the greatest film ever made. Or at least that's what I'd hoped <laughs> that it was going to be. It's the greatest film with the Bee Gees and Frankie Howard. And there are more than one films <laughs> with the Bee Gees and Frankie Howard. The thing is that when we started watching this, I said to yourself, I fully expect this to be the greatest film ever made. And I meant it as well. Because I'm a big fan, I know this is ridiculous, but I'm a big fan of the year 1978. Lots of things about 1978 interest me and excite me and so on. It's a period of change, a little bit of sort of instability and what have you. And so I was looking at this and thinking, yeah, this could be some good stuff. I still can't understand why the Bee Gees have signed up for this, especially as it's a year removed from Saturday Night Fever. It's not like they need a platform to propel themselves to stardom. I get it in, in Peter Frampton's case. But nonetheless, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking George Burns and Frankie Howard and I've heard a couple of the songs from the soundtrack and enjoyed them, especially Mean Mr. Mustard, Frankie Howard, best song ever made, official. And so I'm thinking, I know this is going to be nonsense. It's not going to have much of a plot, but it's going to be enjoyable. It's going to be good, silly fun. I'm hoping I'm going to get the same sort of vibe from this as I do with something like the Jackson's Variety Show. You know, don't analyse it, don't try and make sense of it, just enjoy it, just enjoy the overall atmosphere. What do you call it, the spats effect? Yes. Okay, that's what I was expecting with this. Just in case you have had some sort of terrible MP3 player accident and the tags from this MP3 have been stripped and somehow the title's been changed, just in case you're in sound only, today we're talking about the 1978 film Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and it would be remiss of me not to mention another podcast that's already tackled this particular epic. You remember Megan, who came with us on yes. Jeff Gicks Bruce to look at Match Game and look at Blankety Blank? Indeed. She's part of something called Same Page Cast, and her and her associate Craig took a look at Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and they also watched Grease 2. Hey! God love her. So, podsodcast.com slash category slash same page cast they're part of the pods and sods network and show 21 was the one where they tackled sergeant pepper we've kind of jumped over a period we should have been looking at because our podcasting schedule changed and halved in some ways the number of casts we're going to do in 2017 we've ended up missing out on british rock movies of the late 60s and the early 70s and the mid 70s. So we're a little bit lost in the woods here. And why are we doing this in Jefferville? I think it will become clear. We missed out on the rock operas. Rock operas have a lot to answer for. I think in some ways, the rock opera has taught certain people to listen badly to what are just concept albums. There is the argument, is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band even a concept album? concept kind of runs out two songs in to side one and comes back second song from the end on side two and apart from that it's just a Beatles album I'm going to talk about the Beach Boys for a moment please forgive me when it comes to the album Smile certain Beach Boys fans keep trying to project a plot onto it and there isn't a plot I know Brian Wilson has sometimes used the phrase rock opera. I'm just going to say he's not using it accurately. It's not a rock opera. There's no plot. And when you're 
in the presence of somebody who is telling you their breakdown of the plot of Smile, it gets old real quick. I think this Sgt. Pepper movie has kind of grown out of a similar kind of thinking. Let's turn the Sgt. Pepper album into a rock opera. But there are no characters. There is no plot. So you're already doing something you shouldn't with this work. Maybe I'm being a bit unfair. This actually has its roots in an off-Broadway stage production called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band On The Road. And I think all four Beatles saw it. John Lennon seemed to be very happy to be associated with it. There is a picture of him next to the poster pointing to his own name with a big smile on his face. I think this was round about the lost weekend, which seems to be a period when he's a bit more happy being associated with the Beatles' name. So I think that's where we are. It's this idea of let's make a Beatles rock opera. The Beatles never got to do a rock opera. And somebody's thought that it was a bad thing that the Beatles never got to do a rock opera. Jukebox musicals, eh? Well, I mean, this is more your area than mine, but I'm somebody who, I'm self-confessed Philistine, and I'm not really somebody who listens intently to lyrics in songs, for a start. And also, I can probably count on one hand the number of albums that I've listened to in their entirety, from start to finish. I've never been an album person. I like individual songs. We were going to do something, but there wasn't the time. We were actually going to make Gary listen to a big, long list of the great albums of 1967, and time was against us, unfortunately. The thing is, in all honesty, I think it would have been wasted on me, because we did listen to... Do you know, I can't... This is the thing. I can't even remember the name of the album that we listened to. Which one was it? Was it Sergeant Pepper? Sergeant Pepper! Right. Okay. So... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it could have been that one or it could have been the one before or the one afterwards. Was Magical Mystery Tour an album? I've no idea. Or was it a song on one of the albums? This stuff is just completely lost on me. Well, let's stop talking about you because for as much as you were there in 1978, you're present for the year of 1978. I was just. I can't blame this movie on you. Well, I think you should try (laughs) because somebody's (laughs) going to take the rap for it. There's two mindsets I can see here. Probably more than that. But, I mean, one of the mindsets is take something famous and repackage it and sell it back to the people. As base as that, it's one of the things I don't really like about jukebox musicals. Is It's just selling the work back to you with this veneer of new packaging, but I don't think it's done in a sympathetic way. And then there is the other mindset, which is the more supposedly creative one, which is try and read into it try and work out what the story is man i take it then that the most obvious modern day equivalent which would be mamma mia i take it that would fall into the first category because i don't think they're really i haven't seen mamma mia trying to suggest that there's deep meaning in it okay don't panic i'm about to ask you a question if you asked barry norman r.i.p if you asked him barry what's the greatest musical of all time what do you think he would say I suppose he would say something like Singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain is a jukebox musical. Okay. There's only one song in that musical that was written for the film, and all the others are old songs. It's just looking at, right, what do we have the publishing rights to? We have all these songs. Let's stick all these songs into a film. But it works. And I think it works by, for the most part, decoupling the songs from the story. 
it's a musical about people making a musical. There was actually a musical glut in the early talkies. In fact, that's where a lot of the songs from Singing in the Rain come from. They come from early talkies. There was this initial problem that, what do we do with sound? We can do musicals, and there are too many musicals. No, no more. No, I've had enough musicals. And I imagine one plot you're going to come up again and again and again in musicals of that era is, we're putting on a show, and we need a big song, and I've got an idea for a song. And it goes like this. It's the big song and all the girls dancing. It's a way of putting a song in, but it's brutal. (laughs) Another way of doing it is having songs that actually push plot or characterization. I think I talked about this on one of the previous things. I said, uh, The King and I, whenever I feel afraid, I hold my head erect. You can take that song out of context. It's just about a thing, but it's at least telling you something about the mindset of the character. Well, I know you definitely can take it out of context because it was performed by Julie Andrews on The Muppet Show. Yes, but it's telling you something about the character. So she's about to start on this new, quite intimidating thing, but she's the kind of person who doesn't get frightened. Something is intimidating, she whistles a happy tune. So the story and the song are in harmony. And one of the things that I guess this really comes down to the fact that I really hate the fact that We Will Rock You exists, even though I've never seen it. (laughs) Queen musical, fine, okay, but this is the Queen musical and we have to put the hits. It's making a musical out of Queen's greatest hits. If you wanted to make a sympathetic musical, you could. There is stuff on Queen, Queen 2, bits of sheer heart attack that all seem to point to a shared universe and you could possibly cobble something together about how the king of rye lost his throne got banished to nevermore by the black queen after losing his white queen you could do something but of course most of the songs would not be famous and you'd be doing a fantasy fairy taley lord of the ringsy thingy but at least you wouldn't have characters just suddenly singing a song without really paying attention to what the song means and Sergeant Pepper is full of characters. I'm just going to sing this song that very, very faintly ties in. Okay, I'm going to cast myself in the role of Mean Mr. Mustard here. And I'm going to inject a dose of reality. Dirty old man. Dirty old man. I'm going to inject a dose of reality into proceedings based on what you've just said. And I don't necessarily know that you would disagree with this, to be honest. But what you're saying there is perfectly valid. There's better ways to do it there's better ways to tell a story with more selective choice of songs and so on but in the case of both we will rock you and sergeant pepper and probably a dozen other musicals be they stage or film in the real world that's just not going to happen those performances those shows are intended as potential commercial successes and the way to get bums on seats be it in the theater or the movie theater is to have the classics I know that, but it sucks, doesn't it? The way things are stinks. Well, that's the, thi- that's the thing I'm saying, is that that realism is now in everything. And if you're ever discussing a success that you think is bad, you always get some pub boy who says, well, I made a lot of money. Well, they're in business. They're in business to make money. So, I was like, oh, so that's the world we have to live in now. People don't actually care what they're selling. But is that true? I think it is a case a lot more than it used to be. I I remember, I think it might have been Kirk Douglas, 
talking about the old movie moguls and how much he hated them. Didn't think they were nice people, but he said they did at least enjoy movies. They did get high on their own supply. That's not the words he used. But that was his point. They were interested in what they were producing. They were in a commercial enterprise, and they were definitely moving people around like pieces on a board to maximize the return on their investment. But there are possibly certain places they wouldn't have gone just because it made money. And of course, they would occasionally get this little panic on and do something for the prestige. A bit like Lou Grade. All of my shows are great. Some of them are bad, but they're all great. He was interested in what he was producing. And some of it might have been Drek. And he knew it. And some of it very much wasn't. And he knew that too. He wasn't throwing things at the wall to see what stuck. But I think he was watching the shows he made. And it comes a point where it's like, I'm not interested in the product. I'm interested on the return I will get on the product. When lack of interest in the product happens, I don't care it was bad, it bought me a house. When that mindset becomes too prevalent, then, well, we're stuck, aren't we? I know I made my example about Queen. With the Beatles, it's different. You could make a Beatles musical with songs that push the action or push characterization, and they would still all be really, really famous songs. The Beatles didn't start this, but they were very good at doing songs that did have a little story inside them. I don't know if Tyler said this on the show or if he just said it to us during a little pre-production chat, that the Beatles were kind of restless. Once they'd done something, they then wanted to do the next thing. They didn't want to keep doing it and refining it or just keep churning it out. An example of this is they looked at the songs they were doing. Love Me Do, Please Please Me, Ask Me Why, From Me To You, and thought, this I Love You stuff, we've done it. This is getting Sammy. So the idea is, how about She Loves You? Let's make the person singing the song actually on the sidelines of this relationship here. But of course, that turns it into a story, and that is a fantastic song to put into the middle of a story. Boy meets girl. Boy thinks he's lost girl. Boy's best friend comes and says, She loves you. You think you've lost your love? Well, I saw yesterday. So you could make a jukebox musical of the Beatles and just use nothing but really famous songs, but they will still work as songs pushing a story or a character. That doesn't happen in this film, for the most part. I think that's a fair point. And that's because they've anchored themselves to one album. And of course, even that's not enough. They have to start filching a lot from Abbey Road and then borrowing bits of Revolver and Let It Be. And here's a song from Rubber Soul. But the fact that it's based in Sgt. Pepper and Abbey Road, it's still stuck in that rock opera. <sighs> Man, mindset. Because they've taken the more proggy end of the Beatles. It could have made a more successful show from the more mop-toppy end of the Beatles. So here's the reason we're doing this in Jafferville and not Jaffa Cakes of Proust, because also it's taking something English. I think Sgt. Pepper is more English than any of the albums before it. Feel free to correct me kindly if you can. 
but right at the beginning, because Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, as far as we can tell, are a brass band. The idea from the cover came from a picture of Paul McCartney's father with his band, Jim Max Band. And there's a picture of the band and all the people who were dancing that night around the bass drum. Don't think th- I think they were more of a jazz band than a brass band. But even then, it's a dance in a northern place. <laughs> it might have even looked like that scene from In Loving Memory without the benefit of uh, Christopher Beanie's buttocks. Quick interjection. I want you to decide on a cast member now. So in this ideal world, this brass band slash sort of jazz combo, your front man can either be Sid Lawrence, Pete Possefwaite, or Harry Worth. Oh, Harry Worth. We've only seen two episodes of Oh Happy Band, so we don't know that they didn't necessarily perform the whole of Sgt. Pepper, the album, in one of the episodes. So Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band takes place in a locale called Heartland, USA. It's a really uncomfortable fit. I'm not necessarily raining on the parade for somebody who wants to tell a story about Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, but there are things in the album that keep pointing back to Northern England. I'm trying to remember Mr. Kite. There was a real Mr. Kite. There was really a show, being for his benefit. And it was in Town Meadows, Rochdale. Grandchildren on your knee, Vera, Chuck and Dave. And of course, Gary, what's your favourite Beatles lyric of all? It's time for tea and meet the wife. Indeed. Our movie starts in World War One. Here's a little something they missed, and I can't blame them for missing this idea, but I'll point it out anyway. So it starts with Sergeant Pepper's band are a military band. They apparently ended World War One just by playing really well, and Sergeant Pepper was given the coveted Golden Eagle. So get all American, but it's like, it's not Sergeant Pepper's regimental band. Sergeant Pepper's band is not attached to a military organisation. It's attached to a Lonely Hearts Club. Well, hey, there's an idea. Who are the people in Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club? I mean, is it his club or is it just his band attached to the club? Is there a Lonely Hearts Club that Sergeant Pepper went to and to help them get over their grief? He formed a band with them? But I'm sure there's lots of interesting people with stories to tell. You could do it as just an episodic thing. So tell me the story of how you became a Lonely Heart. You, do you have something to say? Is there anybody going to listen to my story all about the girl who came to stay? I've got some advice for you, Jude. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I thought about watching was the film Across the Universe, and I looked at the plot description, and that's actually worse than Sgt. Pepper for hooking names (laughs) from songs onto characters. Have a look through these binoculars. Is that that a walrus over there? (laughs) I'm not looking through binoculars. I'm looking through a glass onion. (laughs) Mythology. That's the word. Somebody's trying to attach a mythology to this. But where did I get that idea from? Well, now here's the thing. Because we decided to get an independent witness for this. And we asked Jeremy of Cinema Limbo. Cinema Limbo podcast available at podnose.com and we asked him to chip in with some observations now what's happened is i've sent him a link where he could watch the film and initially he sort of live tweeted the film directly to myself so for example i had a message which was all in capitals that just said get on with it and at first i didn't actually realize that he was talking about sergeant pepper and i thought have i missed some appointment where i'm supposed to be recording with jeremy or something and then i realized what was going on now I replied, it's a slow burner. 
And then Frankie Howard's very good though. And Jeremy replies, not as great as the comedy stylings of Donald Chuckles Pleasance. Oh, he is so right. Should we just stop here? Yes. You remember when I said about series two of Doctor Who? Something hits William Hartnell and he gets a bit manic. Talk about chuckles. And in my mind, what's happened is he suddenly thought, I am never going to be asked to play another Sergeant Major again! Donald Pleasance, who wanted to be a lead actor. He really did want to be playing heroes. And that was not really going to happen. So he ended up falling into playing horror movie guys. I've not really seen any of the horror movies he's in. It's not my scene. But for the most part, he didn't get to play characters with that much difference from any of the other characters he was playing. There's a nice Twilight Zone with him in where he gets to play a lovely old teacher. I recommend that. But he was always going to be fixed into a certain type. And definitely the kind of type Donald Pleasance was going to get to play, the kind of parts that he was going to be offered, his agent was never going to get a call saying, we want Donald to play a medallion-wearing, cowboy hat-wearing, toupee-wearing, coke-sniffing impresario who's into the decadence and the high life. And every moment Donald Pleasance is on screen, you can see he is in ecstasy because it's like, I never get to play these parts. I am going to enjoy every single moment of this. and. They make a mistake with the song I Want You, She's So Heavy. They only let him sing the first verse. They should have let him sing the entire song. It's it's wonderful to see somebody enjoying themselves. He gets an on-screen snog. Just imagine his agent going, Donald never gets snogs. Hang on a minute. Don't, don't put the phone down. Sandra, bring up Donald. Line two. He's got to hear this now. So all praise to Donald Pleasance. One person who's really making the most of his part, and I won't hear a word against his performance in this. He's playing the big cigar-chomping... He's playing Robert Stigwood. BD Records' logo is a red pig, and RSO, Robert Stigwood's label, was a red cow. So, sorry, go on. So, Jeremy then continued. He added, The Bee Gees really were the lighthouse family of their day. Now... I've replied to that, Paul Nicholas is the David Essex of the same day. And then Jeremy has concluded, Peter Frampton is like someone gave life to a bottle of semi-skimmed milk. I'm kind of staying out of the Peter Frampton kicking because I don't know enough about his career. So I don't know if this is the best he can do or if this is not a good use of his considerable talents. Well, after having seen the film, Jeremy then emailed us both and said, let's get the positives out of the way first. Donald Pleasance continues to be the great unsung comic actor of British cinema, with his hammy capering being a delight, and obviously Steve Martin's performance of Maxwell's Silver Hammer is terrific fun, even if the setting makes no sense. And that's the problem with the film. The makers have decided to take the lyrics of the songs literally to create a mythology of the Beatles, a name that does not appear in speech or text, regardless of how nonsensical it is. That is, unless they just completely fabricate something from scratch, so Maxwell Edison is a plastic surgeon rather than a serial killer, and Mr. Mustard no longer lives naked in a hole but drives a camper van with a couple of robot women who massage him. 
The script is woefully thin in plot terms, but still bogged down in turning every named figure in the songs into a character. The result is a desperately clumsy mess, mired in dull acting from the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton, interspersed with full-length musical performances that add nothing. And what performances? It's as if Robert Stigwood held a gun to George Martin's head and ordered him to create the blandest and most anodyne mixes possible. With a few honourable exceptions, such as Earth, Wind & Fire, Billy Preston and Aerosmith, it's like listening to mayonnaise. The final act, centering on funerals and suicide as the Bee Gees offer an overwrought take on A Day in the Life, is hilarious, just before the entire plot is solved by a magical black man. It's appropriate that the villain is an evil record producer, since Stigwood is the true menace. The film preaches peace and togetherness through the Beatles' music, but it is hopelessly watered down to attract the broadest demographic. It takes aim at modern changes in popular music, claiming it was all better in the good old days of Liverpool, USA, while ignoring the Beatles' own innovation and experimentation. Ultimately, it's a tremendously cynical film, interested only in establishing a new canon while erasing the same boldness and creativity that had already made the Beatles immortal. Jeremy also adds as a footnote, Henry the Horse does not dance a waltz. And how come the evil band is the most like the Beatles' sound when they're supposed to be the ones corrupting it? That's another thing. Yes, there is a message in this film about picket fences and good old-fashioned American values and in some ways good old-fashioned pre-rock and roll American values. Frankie Howard's character, Mean Mr. Mustard, an ex-real estate developer, turns up in Heartland, USA, steals the magical instruments, don't ask, which assure Heartland and the world will always be happy, and he opens an amusement arcade. So we have this scene, it's meant to be the corruption of Heartland, and there are people capering and grinding and playing on these amusement machines, pinball, and maybe the Space Invaders in there. And I'm looking and thinking, but this is rock and roll! This is the stuff that the Beatles took and sold back, and were very much happy parts of. Okay, there's a bit later where there's obviously meant to be pimps, but some of what Mr. Mustard has brought to town is some of what the Beatles brought to town. So we have this idea, I guess, maybe of Sergeant... Pepper's band being the overthrow of rock and roll? What? What? Does rock and roll need to be overthrown? Depends who you ask. If you ask Michael Ripper, he would say, yes, definitely, get these hoodlums out of my cafe. I was thinking if I asked you. <gasps> well, you're the one who asked, did the 60s need to happen? Oh, now, hang on a minute. For, for a start, I don't sound like that. That sounds like Rob Brydon doing an impersonation of... David Mitchell. It wasn't meant to be an impression. It was just meant to convey your tone of mind. I am not Peter Hitchens, despite what anybody may say. All right, then. <laughs> Did the 60s need to happen, you f***? <laughs> <laughs> Hang on a minute. We haven't got an explicit tag. You can't say f***. <laughs> okay. Okay, I'll bleep that, even though it's Scottish <laughs> and most people don't know it. <laughs> just because I'm not entirely convinced that the 60s were correct that's no reason to suggest that i don't mind occasionally grooving to a rock and roll track i am not scrooge in mike loves christmas family festival that is not who i am so i i was thinking of watching the film across the universe which i think was scripted or script doctored by clement and lafrenet and it's another attempt at a jukebox musical with beatles songs but the character list started to make me giggle because the characters are jude 
Lucy, Max, Sadie, Jojo, Prudence, Desmond, Dr. Robert, Mr. Kite again, Martha, Jude's mother, Uncle Teddy. Oh, come on. Now now we're bringing in solo Paul McCartney songs. (laughs) Well, when are the frogs turning up in that case? After a while, you think, oh, this is just going to be horribly crammed with Spot the Beetle reference. But yes, that's part of the problem with the Sergeant Pepper film. The heroine is called Strawberry Fields. And at one point she sings the song. She's comforting Billy Shears. I'll give you that. If you're going to have Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in a film about Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, you have to have a character called Billy Shears. Even then we have this peculiar bit. So the whole film's narrated. Sorry, I didn't mention that. It wasn't meant to be. It was meant to be a normal musical, but I think there was a little bit of problem with line delivery. The Bee Gees weren't quite cut out for this acting lark. And also the Bee Gees were trying to get out of it. Apparently they were pleading, is there any way that you could get somebody else to do this? It's just that Robert Stigwood, they owed him that much. See, this is a thing. Okay, this is where my interest suddenly peaks, is when there are details about the film itself. So analysing the film is one thing, okay, but when you actually get to the detail behind how was this film actually made, how was it conceived, how was it received by the public, that's the bit that really grips me. Yeah, You know, I always say, you can only do so much research. I did actually do some research on the effect of cocaine on neurotransmitters. <laughs> I mean, a reading research, I didn't yeah, do any yeah, practical yeah, okay, research. Right, yeah, yeah just, well, let's, let's get that out of the way. <laughs> Because I want you to go to Wikipedia. I can't open things on my uh, computer at the same time as I'm recording. It causes things to skip. There's a particular quote from Robin Gibb. So bring up the page for the film. There's a quote about his opinion of what the album will do. Oh, yes, I remember that now. Right, yes, okay, here we go. Robin Gibb of the Bee Gees announced... There is no such thing as the Beatles now. They don't exist as a band and never performed Sgt. Pepper live in any case. When ours comes out, it will be, in effect, as if theirs never existed. Cocaine is a hell of a drug, as the saying goes. (laughs) And of course, this is part of the perversion of this film. The whole idea is there's this terrible thing as they take these all-American, golly-gee, small-town boys and they get taken to Hollywood, and they get fed drugs and booze. Isn't that awful? It's a rock and roll come disco musical that hates rock and roll, made by people on cocaine, telling a story about how drugs are bad. Well, and hang on a second. This sermon is being delivered by Hollywood, is it? Also, there are a few things I like about this film. I like, for the most part, the way it looks. It's in colour. Oh yes, very much in colour. I do like how Heartland USA is over the top. There's a few bits that raise weird questions, like dollar bills are about the size of white fivers. So it's like, okay, we're in a heightened reality. Then, when the band, consisting of the Henderson brothers and Billy Shears, go to Hollywood, it's real Hollywood. It's a dusty grubby concrete dump for the most part. Even the appealing bits are not all that nice to look at from the outside. Even Amoeba Music and the Cinerama Dome, the bits I like 
And so they go from Heartland USA to the real world. And it doesn't work. It suddenly clashes. One of the film's strengths, its exaggerated production design, is gone. They go to Tower Records. It's the real Tower Records. It's not there anymore. But they're there amid all these grubby prefab buildings and these cracked roads and this grey landscape. It's like watching The Wizard of Oz, where Kansas is in colour and Oz is in black and white. I would have liked this film better if they'd gone to some bizarre, outrageous Hollywood where even the roads were leopard print, everything was glittery and there were disco balls hanging off every lamppost. Make it sleazy, fine, plenty of throbbing pink neon, I'll go for that, but they don't. So it's sort of... You've gone unrealistic and now... This world of giant dollar bills, when they get a telegram, the telegram is slightly larger than a big pillowcase. <laughs> they try to go by balloon and a plane crashes into the balloon and magically they're just inside the plane. So it's like, okay, it's a fairy tale and now it's not. They are driving down the dusty streets of the grubbier end of Hollywood. It would have been okay if everything had been done on sound stages and everything had looked unreal. I would have liked it more. And I think the film might have been slightly better thought of. But I wouldn't have minded it showing a few budgetary limitations. Like The Wizard of Oz. I mean, The Wizard of Oz, it's all indoors. You can tell. But it's okay. It's like, that's the price you have to pay for unrealism. I mean, they've obviously got a backlot with Heartland USA. Maybe they could have found a backlot. I don't actually have to see real Hollywood landmarks. I'll take your word for it that this is in Hollywood. If I can't see the real Tower Records, if I can't necessarily see the Hollywood sign, find a city street backlot and paint it pink and make it weird looking. And I'll believe that that's the Hollywood equivalent to this exaggerated Heartland USA. I want to bring a name into this. Somebody to whom I don't think we've always been fair. Paul Nicholas. Hey. I want to make it clear. I don't think reggae like it used to be was a good move. <laughs> and we don't like Vince in Just Good Friends. Dancing with the Captain is a fantastic song. I know Grandma's Party gets more of the attention, but... No, you're right. Dancing with the Captain is a better record than Grandma's Party. So the big song, the, the opening song. It was 20 years ago today, Sergeant Pepper taught the band to play. Paul Nicholas sings those words, and he sells them. He sings those words like it's important. He's playing Dougie, Billy's greedy brother. We're just told, talk about informed attributes. Mr. Kite, played by George Burns, narrates the entire film and just tells us things. So Sergeant Pepper's valuable golden eagle was given to... Billy Shears, which made his greedy stepbrother Dougie jealous. Well, duh! And we're just meant to accept it. Dougie's bad. Why is he bad? He's just bad, okay? It's okay that his brother gets a nice big reward, and he doesn't. So he ends up being the manager of the band, and he's only interested in money. Yeah, he's only interested in money to make up for the love that his parents and Sergeant Pepper didn't give him. Jeez. Anyway, Paul Nicholas... What I'm saying is Paul Nicholas should have been Billy Shears. Yes. And if you want somebody to play Dougie, the you, mean, you need somebody a bit weirder. Okay. I'm going to make a mildly insane suggestion. Dougie Shears, Bill Oddie. Hey. <laughs> that guy can sing. 
but he's also funnier. He can be weirder than Paul Nicholas is in the part. Paul Nicholas is doing the best with what he's got, but yeah, he should be the matinee idol. He should be the hero because Peter Frampton, I don't know, he's just kind of there. But I don't want to write him off because I'd, I'd have to say that he was terrible in everything he did and I've never heard any of his songs apart from that bit of one on The Simpsons. I guess that the Bee Gees, Peter Frampton, they're not actors. And I know this is something we've said about the Beatles themselves when we're talking about their films. But the Beatles are naturals. Yes, but when you have non-actors in prominent roles, then they need to be supported by actors. And in the case of Hard Day's Night, for example, you know they're surrounded by your actors doing the heavy lifting. I think perhaps the problem with this is that the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton are being asked to do so much of it. And you've got Paul Nicholas and Donald Pleasence and George Burns and so on scattered through the film, but so much screen time is taken up with the, the four key players. I think that's possibly where some of the problems begin. And like you said, not using their own voices, not using their dialogue. You could get away with that with maybe like one or two people surrounded by actors, but four of them, it seems a bit of a stretch. No, there is one good piece of acting from one of the band. So the Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds sequence. You see Strawberry, good girl next door from Heartland USA, decides to leave home, which is a cue for a song, which is actually reasonably well integrated. Okay, most of it's sung by Frankie Howard's bondage robots, but... <laughs> that is not what they're called in the film, is it? No, but... <laughs> Am I wrong? No. No. So... Strawberry goes to the big city and she sees a billboard of the band and she also sees a billboard of the other BD Records act, Lucy and the Diamonds. And for some reason, Strawberry starts hallucinating a very accurate hallucination because that is what is going on is Lucy's trying to seduce Billy Shears, possibly on behalf of BD, whom she's seen snogging. And Donald was clearly fine with that. So she sees Lucy and the Diamonds singing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Again, somebody singing a song with their name in it, but doesn't really link up. Because, I mean, there's a scene described in that song, and it's not sexy, sinful Hollywood. She tries to sing it like a sexy soul song, and it's not meant to be that. So anyways, part of Strawberry's hallucination, she sees Lucy and the Diamonds getting all seductive, trying to seduce the band who come to life off the billboard as well. And there's this bit where we get this sound effect and Lucy and the diamond skirts vanish so we can see their legs. And Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band are looking at the girls. Wow. Except for Morris. Morris looks right into Cameron. Eh? <laughs> well done, Morris. <laughs> Magic <Magica>, Morris. <laughs> anyway, okay. Whilst we're in a good mood, let's mention all the good things about this film. For a start, George Burns. I really like George Burns' narration for this. He's got the perfect voice for this. He's ideal for that particular role. Frankie Howard. I like Frankie Howard anyway. I'm a fan of Frankie Howard's, but he is... <laughs> I wish this had been more successful for his sake, because I don't know that necessarily Frankie Howard would have gone on to being a huge star playing at the Hollywood Bowl or anything like that, but... It would have been nice if he'd had a big international success. Yes. Yeah. And that song, Mean Mr. Mustard, legitimately, I really do love that song. I think it's fabulous. Steve Martin. 
Now, here's a funny thing. I like Steve Martin's rendition of Maxwell's Silver Hammer in terms of the audio. Visually, we've already touched on the fact, and Jeremy's mentioned it as well, that the setup doesn't really make a lot of sense. Again, it's a story song. It's describing a series of murders. But he's, again, he's singing his own song. Maxwell Silverhammer is not sung by Maxwell. It's a description of the actions of Maxwell. So, right, you want a villain called Maxwell Edison? Well, the Beatles have that song for you to do with a lot of the heavy lifting, but you've just bypassed it. That bit, I think we got off onto a tangent, but Billy Shears gets injured and his girlfriend Strawberry Fields comforts him by singing Let Me Take You Down Because I'm Going to Strawberry Fields. Nobody says that. Gary, I'm not letting you to tilt her ISA. You, know, you can't go there. Anyway, it's half closing today. And it's not been the same since they allowed you to see in the bookies' windows. This is going to sound so ridiculous. I just, I know this is nonsense, but I'm going to say it anyway because it was the first impression that I got from watching this particular scene. And it was also my second, third, and fourth impression as well. Steve Martin felt as if he was doing a takeoff of Kenny Everett. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous. I've no evidence to suggest that Steve Martin necessarily saw Kenny Everett on television in the UK at any point in the 70s. I know that Kenny Everett was a fan of Steve Martin's. But there's just something about Steve Martin's mannerisms in this that really did remind me of Ev on the video show. I mean, let's face it, Steve Martin's got enough spare acting in here to fill the last 30 seconds of every single Vince Powell sitcom put together. Like I say, I've got no way of backing that up at all. It's just that was the impression that I got watching it. And I know that some people may reach the conclusion, oh, well, it's more likely, obviously, that Kenny Everett was ripping off Steve Martin, but I've never, ever had anybody suggest that. And I don't really think that that's the case, to be honest. Whenever I've seen Kenny Everett, I've never had vibes of Steve Martin of him, but I was getting this strongly from this. So, yeah, and also, just on that point as well, there is a lot of business that Steve Martin's doing in this little, I suppose you'd call it a video for the song, I guess, which just seems sort of unnecessarily over the top. And I found it quite sort of distracting and rather silly. And also, of course, like you say, he's supposed to be a villain in the piece and he's singing a song about a murderer and what have you. And yet, technically, he's actually delivering on the offer. He's offering this sort of plastic surgery clinic and he's taking the money and then giving him what he's promised. This is another problem that they're trying to go through. It's, it's too early for this idea, but it's almost like video game plotting. They're meant to go through a boss. Yeah. I don't know about nowadays. I've not played any video games for 20 years, but back in the day of platform games and so on, usually you would have a single big boss figure at the end of each level, and then you get to the ultimate boss man at the very end of the game, and you've got to defeat him. That's how this film works. Mean Mr. Mustard is the first boss. And he takes the instruments and he spreads them amongst other bosses. So Maxwell Edison, who doesn't murder people with hammers. Father Son. And we get some backstory for him that he was a crossing guard called Marvin Sunk, who's now feeding people propaganda on behalf of FVB. There's no tie-up with the Beatles song. It's not even the Sun King. He's just He's called Father Son. The song he sings is Because... It doesn't make any sense of part of the propaganda machine he's meant to be in charge of. Alice Cooper isn't as Alice Cooper. He's wearing a droopy moustache and his 
hair's kind of a bit greasy. He's just a guy with an instrument, and they fight him. So that's the next boss. And the final boss is the Future Villain Band. That's what FVB stands for. And they are played by Aerosmith. They were meant to be played by Kiss. Kiss were busy doing their own film. Something like The Phantom of the Park. I gather it's not held in high regard. The ending had to be rejigged because Billy Shears was meant to beat and kill the lead singer of the Future Villain Band and there was no way that Steven Tyler was going to let himself be beaten on camera by Peter Frampton. And apparently part of his claim was that that was not in the script they agreed to. Now, another crossover with video games there, because the Garfield video game, the creators of said cat insisted that Garfield could not die in the video game, which is unusual for a video game character. So when you fail to complete the game, Garfield simply falls asleep. I just realised I've skipped a bit. I've skipped the best bit of the film. Having retrieved the instruments, or most of them, or some of them, or not, I get confused. They haven't done a concert in ages. Heartland needs saving. And Dougie suddenly does something nice and decides to combine the two problems and says, well, let's put on a benefit show in Heartland USA. Q being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. Mr. Kite being George Burns' character. Of course, the song doesn't quite work because they're talking about all the stunts that Mr. Kite himself (laughs) is going to pull. We are denied seeing George Burns on a trapeze. But Mr. Kite's actually a really well-staged number. I like the look of it. They come into town on the back of a bus like High Summer and there's clowns and jugglers and acrobats. And it's a nice little moment because we're back in the exaggerated, colourful world of Heartland USA. And we've got lots of exaggerated, colourful characters. And they're more or less fulfilling. The promise of the song is just come and see the show. That's f- Okay, that's great. They're, they're, they're putting on a show and they sing a song about putting on the show. There's a little bit of harmony. Earth, Wind and Fire are part of the show. So they do their version of Got to Get You Into My Life, which is generally regarded as the most successful cover. I would like to just point out this stage, just underline what I said earlier on about my lack of knowledge of albums and all things musical, that until about a month ago, I had absolutely no idea whatsoever that that was a cover version of a Beatles song. And I count myself as a big fan of Earth, Wind & Fire. And then we have a scene between Dougie and Lucy, and I suddenly found myself liking these characters and what kind of wanting them to win, even though they're the lesser bad guys. But Paul Nicholas and Diane Steinberg had chemistry. I was suddenly watching two very capable, likable performers getting a bit of alone time together on camera and singing their song well. It's a very peculiar <laughs> sensation. It's like, you've made me like them, and I'm not really meant to like them more than the heroes. <laughs> Well, welcome to the world of the in-betweeners. You see, this is a wrestling thing. Guy supposed to be a heel, ends up getting cheered. More popular than the baby face. Happens all the time. So, I think Dougie and Lucy meant to steal the money from the benefit? Yeah, that was a thing, because that happened and then nothing came of it. No. And Mr. Mustard kidnaps Strawberry Fields. And then we have, sorry, the bit that, so the final big boss is the future villain band. Who are the Future Villain Band? Where do they come from? We know that they hate joy and they hate love and they love money, but no, we know what Father Son's old job was and what his real name is. Who are the Future Villain Band? Where have they come from? What do they know? We never find out. They come on, they sing Come Together. Why do they sing Come Together? 
Why that song? Why don't they sing Baby You're a Rich Man? It's a Beatles song about acquisition. Why didn't they sing You Never Give Me Your Money? Why did they sing that song? They're singing it because Aerosmith do a good version, I guess. Yeah, that's it. Well, that's the answer, isn't it? That's why they're singing it, because it's a popular song. People expect it to be yeah, in the film. Yeah, but that's it. No, I'm not, I'm not. It's like, so do you take your own show seriously? Do you give a damn? Look, if you just want to do a variety show, do a variety show. <laughs> why didn't the Beatles do a variety show? That's exactly my argument for this whole thing. There should have been a Croft Brothers produced Beatles variety ever. We've got this bizarre attempt to kind of tie the film together because we then cut to reaction shots of Mr. Mustard and his friend The Brute. And I don't have the cast list in front of me and I can't tell you The Brute's name. But that almost feels like that was done to try and get some sort of thread going. The Brute should have been played by Bernard Breslau, but wasn't. So the lead singer of the future villain band gets killed. Apparently that's it then, so that's fine. One guy out of the band is dead, so therefore all the evil is over. But sadly, Strawberry Fields dies as well. And then we get another sequence that I think kind of works. I know Jeremy didn't think it did, but there's at least some sort of tie-up between song and scene. Billy is singing a lullaby to his dead girlfriend. It makes sense. Okay, so the lullaby to a dead person. Okay, maybe the staging isn't here, but I can see how that would work as a tragic idea. Boy, you're going to carry that weight. Yeah, kids, it's strange that his friends are kind of rubbing it in. Naturally, Billy decides to uh, off himself. And I can't blame him. No one with friends like that. One key bit that we've overlooked, by the way. At the funeral... It's only mean Mr. Mustard himself, isn't it? What's he doing there? Again, nice little bit of acting. There's BD handkerchief in his face like he's crying and then he has a look to see if there's any photographers or everybody see that I'm feeling sad. Good on you, Donald. Something you don't hear very often in 2017. <laughs> You're not suggesting that the Donald would do such a thing? <laughs> then we have a day in the life. And we have a really bizarre attempt to make that make sense. So we see a newspaper. Somebody called Mr. Jones has killed himself in his car. I did see somebody who thought this tied up and thought that it was Mr. Fields. No, it's Mr. Jones. It's not a character we've ever seen before. Somebody we've never seen or, or never heard of has killed himself in the car. And for some reason, this has really affected the Hendersons. It doesn't work. Also, we have that weird flashback to the Hollywood era. But no. Their thought processes don't make sense. They've been to the funeral of their best friend's girlfriend and the fact that they're suddenly worrying about some guy in the newspaper that they might not even know seems peculiar. Also, Day in the Life has a pathetic effect in the third verse. Bithos is something the Bee Gees used to be really good at. Their 60s stuff is amazing and amazing for deliberate changes of gear. There's a, the first song in Odessa, which is very over-the-top and operatic, and then has this thing about how this bloke's stuck on an iceberg, and then he's writing a letter. I guess he's thinking, I'm going to die here. He's been in a shipwreck, he's trapped in an iceberg, and then suddenly he starts talking about the couple next door. They, they haven't got their dog anymore. That's deliberate. And of course, so of course you've got a day in the life, which is ramping up this somebody, I'm thinking about somebody who died. I saw this brutal film. Nobody could take it except me. And then, of course, we have the little flashback to a normal life. And then the third verse is all about the state of the roads in Blackburn. 
And it's not silly. It is silly, but it's not silly. It makes sense. Suddenly it's a it's a somewhat depressed mind now obsessing over the tiniest details. It's fine in the song, it doesn't come off in the film. You're in Heartland, USA, you've never heard of Blackburn. There's no footage of the roads in Blackburn, for a start. And then the Sergeant Pepper Weathervane comes to life and fixes everything. Stops Billy. Actually, you know, Billy's trying to kill himself, but looking at the height and looking at the position he's in, all he's going to do is shatter his coccyx. He's not going to die at that height. Unless it's like that Chris Morris sketch in Jam. Exactly, gonna... yes. Yeah. He's going to do it 50 times, which would, would have been really depressing into the film. We have this perverse clash of song. I mean, it seems like a nice message, and it would get back to where you once belonged. So Sergeant Pepper, who is now a living, breathing, flying weather van played by Billy Preston, who was on the original record. Does that make that worse or better? But he's then addressing people. Get back, Jojo. He brings Strawberry Fields back to life, and there's, get back, Loretta. Your mama's waiting for you. Okay, this is a very specific scenario, and she's not called Loretta, and I don't see her mama wearing a high heel shoes and a low-neck sweater. It's odd. I can see why this film's got a cult following, though. Because it's a bit weird, because it doesn't match up, but be also because it's exaggerated in places. I like the way the film looks. I think I might buy the Blu-ray. Possibly watch it with the sound off. This isn't rotten from head to tail. There's bits of this that point vaguely towards a film that might have worked, but it's too in love with sticking the entire Sgt. Pepper album, except for one song, they leave out Within You, Without You, trying to graft more proggish elements by nicking a bunch of Abbey Road, and still not having enough, but rather than picking songs that would work well in a musical about a guy who loves a girl, and then following cues from the songs... Right, you can have Maxwell Silverhat. If you need that song in, you can have that song. But that song is telling you who Maxwell is and what he does. So have him do it. And ultimately, it's an attempt to co-opt the most successful group in the world being British and try and make them American in a way. I'm not, I mean, of course, you know, Robert Stigwood was Australian. We've got a lot of British people in this. And the Bee Gees, who are British by way of Australia, were weirdly low on american faces in this but somehow maybe that's part of it maybe it's the non-british people thinking they're not going to accept britishness or englishness maybe it's a very patronizing view of the american people obviously they will not accept any story that's not all about them so we'll just have to pretend that the Beatles' stories are American stories. We'll just have to make out that Sergeant Pepper was in a military band and he won a Golden Eagle medal. So, yeah, maybe today I'll have a little think about who Sergeant Pepper could have been, what his band would have been like. But yes, he's going to look, in my mind, more like Sandy Powell. (laughs) Okay, well, acknowledgements, first of all. So thank you very much, Jeremy, for watching the film first of all and also for throwing in your thoughts sorry jeremy (laughs) just let everybody know that cinema limbo returns later this month november with a catch-up special and then in december it's going to be covering eyes wide shut and black christmas of course you can find out all the details about that at podnose.com and also quick bit of mailbag action thank you to man in the moon who messaged us regarding the aforementioned will hay to let us know that the Will Hay Appreciation Society is staging a screening of two restored films, The Goose Steps Out and Old Mr. Porter. 
It's at the Mockingbird Cinema and Kitchen in Birmingham, and it's on Sunday the 10th of December. Eyes peeled for the young PT Houston off everybody. Yes. And it's a fundraiser for the Motor Neuron Disease Association. Now, as we're recording this, there are only 12 tickets left, so it may have sold out by the time you hear this, but if you're interested in going along to that, have a look at buggleskelly.co.uk for all of the information. So, we find ourselves here in Jaffaville, and yet we're in Heartland, so how do we get out of Heartland, and where are we going next in Jaffaville? We're going to stay in that odd little twilight world where the Beatles are being sold to the American people in a way that attempts to downplay their northern English origins. Next week, on Jefferville, we're going to be watching the Beatles cartoon. We're going to be joined by Ken Mills, who is on so many podcasts his friends call him the Podfather, and we're going to be listening to the voices of Lance Percival and Paul Fries, being the voices of John Paul, George and Ringo. And we're going to speculate why a cartoon about the most successful band in the world isn't out there for everybody to enjoy. We might have the answer. You never know. So in the meantime, if you've got anything at all for us, you can tweet us at Jaffas for Proust. You can find us on Facebook at Jaffa Cakes for Proust. You can find every single previous edition of Jaffa Cakes for Proust and the Sitcom Club and the very first Jaffaville as well. You can find them all at podnose.com. In case anybody missed it before, till you've recently popped up on another podcast, haven't you? That's it. I was on the pilot of Room 404, part of the... From the Sublime Media Empire. Find out more at fromthesublime.com. So, until next week, farewell and hasty back to Jafferville. <laughs>